What's going on, everybody? It's the Searching for Something podcast. We look at everything and anything from every angle to see if there's something worth talking about. And today, I have the lovely privilege of having a conversation with somebody who I had previously introduced as a future venture capitalist, and now he is well on his way to making that dream a reality. So before we get into it, I want to welcome Jake Lays. How's it going, everybody? It is good to be back for a part two. It's been over a year at this point, so a lot has changed both in the world at large and for me personally, so I am super excited to be back on the Searching for Something podcast and dive into that. Yes, so happy you're here, Jake. So let's just start. You know, you're one step closer to being exactly where you want to be. So just tell us a little bit about your journey, about how you ended up as a program manager at Techstars. So last time I was on the podcast was somewhere in March of last year. So I should have just been finishing up with uh, my job at Comotion Labs at the University of Washington, which is a startup incubator that's associated with the University of Washington and their tech transfer office. Um, and there I worked with startups in the hardware space and then later in the life sciences space. And uh, <clears throat> while working there, my boss at the life sciences department had actually gone through Techstars with a company in 2017. Um, and so he knew the team, he knew kind of what Techstars was all about. And he told me, since I was just about to graduate, this, these are some people that you should definitely check out. I think you align well with what they're doing. And it sounds like they're in need for essentially an intern and uh, we call them associates, but the equivalent of an intern. He said, I think they're looking out for somebody like that. You should go check them out. So we went over, we talked to the team. I thought it sounded really, really cool. So I was like, absolutely, we gotta go after this. And <clears throat> I ended up starting with Techstars late March um, and jumped right into our Web3 crypto program, the Filecoin Techstars Accelerator, which is based right here in Seattle on the University of Washington campus, in fact. Um, and about halfway through that program, the old program manager, which is uh, second to the managing director, which runs the whole program, she left. She It just didn't align with what she was interested in, so she ended up leaving, and uh, that position became open. And typically, a program manager at Techstars needs five to ten years of experience, typically highly preferred to have an MBA or some equivalent experience at a startup or another venture office. Um, and so I know a lot of people that had those credentials were applying, but I threw my hat in the ring and I went through, I think about a seven round interview process, um, going through obviously everyone on the local team, but with people from teams all over the world and I'll get into a little bit more about Techstars in a second, but I interviewed with people from Washington, D.C., people from Los Angeles, people from New York, and people at the central office. And eventually I came out on top and I was asked to step up and become the program manager for the Techstars Seattle program. And that's where I've been now for the last year. I started there uh, right at the end of May into June of last year, so um, just over my one year anniversary right now. I've run several programs. I was actually um, just about a month ago down in Los Angeles running their double program, half software, half healthcare. 
Um, I ran that program for about six weeks and came back. Now I'm preparing to run the Techstar Seattle's 15th class, which will also be a double-sized class, 24 companies. Wow. First of all, congratulations. Thank you. I think it's always amazing to see somebody actively pursuing exactly what they want to do. And there's a quote that I love by Earl Nightingale that I love to reference, and it's how he defines success. I really align with it, and I think you embody it very, very well. And the quote goes, success is the progressive realization of a worthy ideal. And I believe it sounds like everything you've been doing. fantastic quote. I love that quote so much. It's all about just, am I taking the right step forward. And it sounds like you've been doing it and you're able to showcase your abilities, you know, against all the candidates that also wanted that role. So I want to take a step back for a second. So you were at CoMotion, that's an incubator, and mm -hmm. Techstars is an accelerator. For the people who are listening who don't know, you know, the baseball language, what what's the difference? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, Co-Motion as an incubator, typically that means that we host the startups for a longer period of time than does an accelerator. The very key difference being that Co-Motion does not take equity in the startups. Techstars, as an accelerator, we are a venture capital organization, so we do take equity. Co-Motion operated on essentially like a rent basis, like that was their business model, more like a co-working space but slightly more startup and business focused than something like a WeWork, which is a traditional co-working space. Um, Techstars, on the other hand, we spend a majority of our time sourcing and evaluating companies to invest in. So we do give a small amount of capital in exchange for a relatively small amount of equity um, that is to come in and be a part of our program. And once in the program, we put tech, we put startups in touch with mentors, investors, just tons of people. Our biggest benefit, I would say, is 10xing the network of a startup founder. So they come in and generally first-time founders benefit the most from something like Techstars because they don't have those types of connections. They don't know necessarily all the different things that are involved with what they're about to take on. Um, and so that's something we do. We're not a startup school per se, like something like a Y Combinator has a startup school where you're really sitting down classroom style, mm. you're taking notes, you're watching videos, that types of thing. We don't do that. We do provide workshops on specific topic areas. We bring in experts um, and that's sort of my main job is scheduling that program, um, bringing in those speakers, coordinating with our mentors, setting up those meetings. Got it. Is it difficult to be part of Techstars? Like from, let's say I'm a founder, I have a really cool idea. And I guess that leads into is like, what kind of companies is Techstars working with? Yeah, yeah, another great question. So it is very difficult. It's very intensive. Um, it's an accelerator. Our whole goal and like our whole jobs as the team as Techstars is to condense what we normally would say is about two years worth of startup work down into 13 weeks, which is the duration of our program. So Damn. that becomes very intensive. We sort of take over your calendar as a founder. So while it is only quote unquote 13 weeks, which is just about three months, give or take, it's very intense. And we advise startup founders to like tell their family that this is going to be a big undertaking and it's gonna suck up a lot of their time. Sometimes we do things early in the morning. Sometimes we're at events late, late at night. It, it all really depends. 
um, and everything in between. That being said, building a startup is super, super hard. So that's something that they've already sort of, uh, like undertook as a person is that that level of dedication and uh, how much that they're putting into their life's work, which is their startup. Um, and so coming in here, we're sort of giving them the right tools and putting them in the right environment to turn all of that dedication, all of that work into its maximum potential. Got it. Got it. So how would, let's say, for example, I have a startup and I'm pretty early stage and I, this all sounds super appealing to me. What is the best way for me to stand out? Because I'm sure there's probably thousands of app, you know, applications that you guys get and somebody has to go through. So what is, what's cutting edge? What are you guys really betting big on where it's like, hey, I see a company that's doing this. This is resonating a lot with the current direction that we're going. Let's bring them in. Like, can you talk on that? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I actually neglected your uh, previous question, which is what types of founders, what types of startups do we work with? And uh, I can really only speak to Techstars Seattle. Techstars as a whole is massive. We have now had over 4,000 companies come through the broader Techstars. We were recently named the most active seed investor in the world. So there's 59 Techstars accelerators running in almost every major city on the planet. Techstars Seattle is the third oldest and the largest by market cap. And we've been around since 2010. We are almost exclusively software-based, so we're not taking any, there are exceptions, but uh, for the most part, we're not taking hardware core businesses, so when they're building um, a physical product or any wet life sciences business, if there's a lab component and they're building therapeutics, that type of thing. So we really stick with software, but beyond that, while we do lean a little bit towards like business-to-business -business, uh, SaaS, software as a service, um, just because of the ecosystem of Seattle, because we have Amazon and Microsoft right in our backyard, um, we do take all types of software founders, any industry. And then from there, what do we look for in a team? How do you stand out? That is where it starts to become kind of the principles of early stage investing because of the stage that we're investing at, which is typically anywhere from just idea stage, so something that's spinning up out of a graduate school that has a very strong team, all the way up to you've raised a couple of million dollars, you're looking to build up your uh, and, and raise a, a series A round of financing, you have a couple of million dollars of revenue. So we take anywhere in that range, but when you're looking at companies so early in their life cycle, typically the idea that they're working on isn't going to be the exact idea that they end up doing later on. It might be the same principle, and sometimes it's completely different. So really what we have to index on as the investors is who is the team? Who are the people that are putting this together? Why are they gonna win? And especially of late, there's so many of these businesses popping up that look very similar from the outside. How do we distinguish between those? It's gonna be that team. And it's gonna be, do we think that this team has the ability to win in whatever industry that they choose? Do they have the right mix of experience, technical ability and sales ability. That's the main thing that we look for. We say that there's really like six things that we look for. The first three are team. So we're always going to over index on that because the idea might be something completely different. Companies that come into Techstars, a lot of them pivot and do something different than they were doing when we accepted them. 
that's very common and something we expect. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah, you talking about how when you bring the idea there, it doesn't mean that's necessarily going to be the idea that ends up getting, you know, what's the output. It kind of reminds me of like when writers talk about true writing happens in the editing. You know, yeah. you have the seed there, exactly. but it's through the edit, the iterations back and forth. We're like, wait a minute. I had one little sliver that did lead to something, but now it's a totally completely, it's a different story. It's not even remotely same for what it was, but I really like this one part that I said here, which birthed this whole other story that I had. It sounds very similar to that. Yeah. And sometimes it's, it's even bigger than that. For example, one of the, one of the companies in our last class did a full 180 pivot. I mean, they dropped the idea entirely picked up something new and I would say already they are they have surpassed the level that they had gotten to with that last idea just based on the things that they had learned in Techstars and the people that they were put in touch with. Wow. So like Techstars gives them that comfortability of saying, mm -hmm. hey, you guys can make that pivot because I feel like it would be kind of hard to be in that position where it's really easy to get married to an idea. And you're like, yeah. oh, I don't want to let it go. I don't want to let it go. So Especially if you've been working on it for years. Even. Yeah. I mean, you've put your heart and soul into an idea, and now you get here, and all these really high-up people that have done this before are telling you not to do it. It can be super hard to let go. Um, but we as an investor, like one of the things we really do want to encourage is giving them that space and that ability to make a change and pivot, and just telling them that it is so common. In fact... Techstar Seattle is, is very famous for having the most successful accelerator class ever, which was our 2011 class. Three unicorns out of 10 companies came out. Wow. And a fun fact is that all three of those unicorns are doing something completely different than when they came into Techstars. Whoa. That's insane. I don't think for the average person, I don't know if they're really absorbing how crazy that is because it's just it's so easy to bring you one idea and say this is what i want to do and to let go pivot and then that end up being a billion dollar idea like that is incredible would you say what contributes to the pivots is it just the environment and just saying hey we're providing this really safe environment for them to collaborate and make these pivots or is it the conversations that they're having with mentors and the guidance that you guys are giving like what from your experience usually sparks kind of this like internal dialogue of like, hey, should I make a pivot or should I continue going down the path that we brought them? It's I, I would say it's almost always the mentors. So that's a big thing that we center our program around is this thing we call mentor madness, where we put together over two weeks, about 500 meetings total. So about each each company will meet 80 mentors that we have handpicked for them. Um and these are people that like have deep experience in a particular field, have had multiple startups. Some of them have had IPOs and multiple exits themselves. So they've done this before. They know what they're doing. These are really big name people. And we bring them in and have our startups go in for 25 minutes. They pitch and they discuss the idea and the startups ask them for help. So a lot of good customer connections, investor connections come out of that. But the biggest thing is the advice. And so a lot of founders will come and say like, oh, I've been working on this idea for years. Like we think that it's this certain way. And this mentor will be like, oh, five years ago, I had a company, we tried that. It failed because of this, this, and this. And it's things that hadn't come around the bend for that startup yet. And now they're able to pivot and avoid those pitfalls. 
because of that mentorship. Part of it is certainly the environment and the fact that we're telling them that it's okay to do this, that it's common, because as a first-time founder, you might think, oh, this whole industry, this whole ecosystem is all about grind, 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 like I'm just going to bury this out till the very end. And it's like, no, it's all about being nimble. It's all about being agile, working with what comes at you. And you as a startup team, figuring out how to move around the obstacles. And if that's doing something different than what you started with, that's okay. Got it. So would you say the biggest pitfall that a lot of these, you know, early first time founders kind of encounter is the inability to be nimble? Like what would you say is the kind of the number one things that make somebody not be able to be successful by launching their own thing? Yeah, not having a growth mindset, I would say is the number one. And and a lot of times that's not as dramatic as causing them to pivot the whole company, but it's listening to your customers and like hearing certain things, but just really not being able to let go of a certain way of thinking, not being able to take all of this outside input and turn that into uh, a different path for yourself into new features for the product or a slightly different way of marketing. So not having a growth mindset, not being coachable, whether that's through your investors, whether that's through your mentors, or most importantly, your customers or your potential customers, that's a huge pitfall of a lot of early stage founders. Mm, Yeah, that makes sense. And so I'm just curious because that 2011 class, like you said, there was 10 total companies, three of them were unicorns. And so there's been a total of around 4,000 companies that have gone through. Is that just Techstars Seattle? No, about 144 companies have gone through Techstars Seattle. 4,000 is Techstars as a whole. Across the globe. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. And so, you know, you read these statistics where it's like 90 to 95% of startups, they fail. So of the 4,000 in total, like what percentage of them, I don't know if you have that number offhand, but just like, you know, guesstimating, like what do you think percent are actually still viable companies that are in operation? So I can't speak quite as well to Techstars as a whole, just because... And I, I don't need to get too deep into the business model, but what I can speak on is the statistics surrounding Techstar Seattle. And out of the over 144 companies that have come through our program, about 86% of them are either still in business or have had an exit, meaning they've like been acquired or had an IPO. Wow. Which is essentially reversed startup math. Yeah, that's incredible. Wow. I love that. So for anybody listening right now who thinks they're sitting on a pot of gold, you might have to apply. You never know. And depending on when you're listening, um, as of right now, applications are open and they'll be open through July of 2023. Wow. I love that. And so given the fact that we're talking about startups, we're talking about the future, it's inevitable to start talking about AI. AI is everywhere. We can't escape it as a topic of conversation. So how do you see the current AI wave influencing the startup landscape? Just like with everything else. I mean, AI is coming in. It's uprooting a lot of the things that we originally thought about technology. I would say it's kind of changing everything. I mean, a statistic that I really like to bring up, um, it's something my boss talks about, a lot of the time is, I I think a lot of people don't know this, but only about 0.5% of all the people in the world 
know how to code. 0.5%. 0.5% of people in the world know how to code. Wow. So with this new AI advancement, with things like Copilot getting a lot better, and just as simple as Explain asking... Explain what that is. Copilot is a, um, it's a software engineer assistant, essentially. Um, you can input code, it'll give you feedback and things like that. So that was around before ChatGPT. Now we have things like ChatGPT that are able to give that same power to the average person, to somebody who has never touched a piece of code in their life. So we're rapidly approaching a point at which anyone who uses the internet can code. That's a, that's a groundbreaking idea. Yeah. That's mind-blowing, truly. Because so many people have amazing ideas but don't have the technical ability to execute on top of those ideas and put those ideas out into the world. They just sit in their heads because only 0.5% of the world has the ability to turn those ideas with, with software into reality. Now expanding that number to like 50%? That's going to change everything. So like that little tiny thing alone with coding, that's going to blow up everything. So that push, that making everyone more effective, that has absolutely rattled the startup ecosystem. And there are now thousands and thousands of companies popping up all over the place that are building things around these LLMs. And I will say as an investor, so much of it is noise. So much of it is Nothing except for ChatGPT with a with a user interface on top. Buzzwords. Of it. Buzzwords. It's just buzzwords, and so our most challenging job right now is not getting like enough applications. Although we we want more applications, it's how do we dig through all of these brand new AI companies that have popped up in the last six months and figure out which ones are real businesses. That's been a challenge. And with that being said, while I have heard so much, oh, we're doing this enabled by AI, we're AI enabled this, we're using an LLM to power this, I honestly think that if you're a startup founder right now and you're not trying to figure out how to infuse AI and help it improve the quality of what you're doing right now, you should be. Like, it is just that powerful. It can permeate just about everything that we do and make everything that we're doing better. I mean, the customer experience you can make a thousand times better. You don't need to have somebody sitting there typing back on a chat bot. You can have something that's equally as good do that 24 hours a day for thousands of people at the same time using the new APIs that have come out. And the best thing about that is that they're just going to keep getting better. It's we're, we're on day one of the AI wave, truly. Granted, I think we're in a little bit of a bubble with everybody being crazy excited, but over the long run of this technology, we're on day one. Just like with the internet, there was the dot-com bubble that popped and everyone thought, oh, the internet's dead. Well, newsflash, the internet's not dead. It's bigger than ever. It's going to happen with AI, 100%. Yeah, I completely 100% agree with you. I think it's just this whole new paradigm shift of viewing and interacting with the world that we just, I can't sit here and confidently say to you what the implications of that is going to have on the world. Like, I just can't. It's just so big and grandiose that it's hard for me to wrap my head around what 
could be possible, but to localize it a little bit, because not everybody knows a lot of these niche AI, you know, softwares that is out there. Let's just kind of start big, you know, chat GPT, just kind of give me your thoughts and opinion. What have people in your industry been thinking about it? And let's just start there. ChatGPT is one of the most exciting things to happen in technology, maybe ever, if not a thousand percent in the last decade. Just its ability to cover a massively broad range of topics and be so highly on average correct about those things to be able to produce the level of language that it can produce and answer the range of questions that it can in such a short period of time is really mind blowing. I mean, honestly, if you were to grab somebody from five years ago and show them this technology, their mind, their brain would explode. Like even now, five, even now there's grab somebody. There's people that don't know about this and it blows their mind and scares them. It terrifies them. And like, yeah, we're moving in a direction that is a little bit terrifying, but at the same time, it's never been more exciting to be in the technology space and to see what sort of advancements we're going to be able to make to every single individual's daily life utilizing this technology. Yeah, I think the only real people that need to be in fear of ChatGPT potentially replacing their jobs are the people who are kind of just complacent with the status quo average. Um, those are really the people that should be afraid. And there's people who are operating at a high enough level, then they're able to take use of this technology and be even better. And so what do you think about the potential threat that something like ChatGPT has to the average person? Honestly, I think some jobs will be eliminated. So I think some people will be hurt by this, but on mass, it will only be good for everybody. It will make everyone better at their jobs. At least everybody right now that's working in the technology space, we don't know the full implications of it, but I think it will create as many jobs as it takes away. So that, that's sort of my, been my thought process around <clears throat> the technology wave for a long time. People said the same thing about robots. They said that like 10 years ago that, oh my God, robots are going to take everyone's jobs, but there's a lot of robot technicians out there now and like robots really haven't come all that far. So my take is that new technology creates as many jobs as it takes, takes away. So there's going to be a lot more people that are going to be able to write using AI as a copilot. They're going to be able to code they're going to be able to build something they wanted to build and put that out into the world in the form of a website or a software product or whatever the case may be i mean the future coming up with ai agents which for anybody that doesn't know what that is right now chat gpt is a what's called large language model meaning the whole technology is built on top of a very complex version of predicting what the next word is going to be just like your phone keyboard does your phone keyboard's kind of a, uh, a dumbed down version of the large language model. Once you give something enough layered data and a large enough data set, it can predict what the next word is going to be really effectively. And that's what ChatGPT is doing. The next level is actually building AI agents, which are an entirely different type of technology, but will probably be folded into what a lot of these do. And agents are actually able to 
utilize software and essentially use a computer, use a computer, accomplish tasks on the internet. So if I say I want, I, I want to go search into Redfin for a house that's between this dollar amount and this dollar amount in this particular area. And I, I have all of these different things. I type that in out in natural language. This can go out, it can open up my browser, it can type those things in, it can pull up Redfin, and it can find me a list of homes on Redfin. It can do all of that. So that's sort of the next generation, not just searching the web, but actively using it and, and, and going in and making things happen on the internet and with software. That is going to be another massive revolution, and it's all just coming at the speed of light right now. It's absolutely insane to just think about the day and age that we're living in and what the future could potentially look like. I don't think this is really, unless you've been in this space and you've been able to track the trajectory that, hey, this is inevitable, this will come out. For somebody who doesn't know much about technology, that's just, you know, pluck them out of, you know, down the street. It's the world that we're slowly architecting is absolutely insane. And so I'm just curious on your thoughts because I see... Almost like what ChatGPT is doing with um, the new plugins that are available to the mm -hmm. Plus users, where Apple, you know, when they first came out with the App Store, it incentivized a lot of developers to create a lot of amazing apps for people to use and download. And so we're starting to see something really similar happen with ChatGPT, where people are making incredible plugins. And so I'm just curious, do you think that will kind of be like this next frontier like it's almost like the app store where a lot of people are going to be incentivized to build plugins i'm just curious on what you think i actually disagree with a lot of the things that i've heard about the plugins i think they're very cool i think there's still some potential there but i think the chat gpt api so essentially other products other companies using the large language model of chat gpt in their product interfacing it directly into their product that's more exciting and like that's going to spur a lot more development so it's similar but there's no direct metaphor with like the apple app store yeah if that makes sense yeah i, I, was, I was curious wanted to get your thoughts because i know that's some stuff that i've heard in conversation and somebody like yourself who's in this space wanted to get your opinion and so i mean we've been talking a lot about apple you know, and so I'm just curious where we're talking about having, you know, that your keyboard being that dumbed down version of that large language model. And so knowing Apple being a, you know, two trillion dollar company and all the data that they have access to. Do you think it's kind of inevitable that they're going to be coming out with their own version of this? And what do you think that's going to do in terms of just like disrupting the way we perceive this type of technology? Apple's is going to be game-changing. I mean, it is going to blow our minds. Like, I, I've heard from some people that are, like, inside at Apple that the stuff that they're working on makes everything out there right now look <laughs> like look like the keyboard in comparison. It's a drawing with crayon. It's their drawing with crayon versus now I'm using generative digital art. To now it's the statue images. of David. Yeah. It's a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece. So, I like, even I can't really wrap my head around how much data 
Apple actually has. But if you think about like how they've came out with Siri and how Siri feels a little bit like a generative large language model, kind of like ChatGPT, but ChatGPT takes it a couple of steps further than Siri does, right? Like Siri can just use the basic stuff on your phone. The next generation of Siri that comes out, I it might even like replace ChatGPT. It's it's going to be that good. I mean, it's going to incorporate voice. It's going to use all the data they have. And Apple has enough data on you to really have Siri be a true AI personal assistant to the point where it knows your schedule. It's going to be able to tell you, hey, don't forget to send out that email in preparation for the meeting that you're going to have in two hours. Oh, you might want to get coffee. You usually get tired at this time. That's that type of stuff. And then tying, taking that a step further with the Apple Watches, I'm wearing one right now and a lot of people have Apple Watches. And the newer generations, even more new than mine, are, are capturing biometric data on a level we've never seen before. And Apple is about to come out with, or they have already, I, I, I don't know exactly, but um, some mental health, a, a full array of mental health sort of data capturing services, but it's in an interface that hopefully will help some people because they have such good access. But that staggering amount of data of how many people have iPhones and how many people have Apple Watches and how they're gonna be able to utilize that and how much user interaction they've been able to capture. So I would say that has been the biggest like learning curve for ChatGPT was that it's taken them a while in several stages of opening it up to more and more people to have it be as good as it is now. Apple's had that for years. They know exactly what everyone does. Their large language model, I, I, like, I'm scared to even speculate how good it's going to be because it's going to change the game. Yeah, it's like whatever you think it is, think bigger and think more. Yeah, <laughs> think better, think more well-designed, <laughs> yeah. like think better marketing. Yeah. That's Apple. So what do you say to the people who say, I am absolutely terrified of that? There's some people who really, they think that what's coming out now with technology is a Black Mirror episode. Yeah. What do you think about that type of... That level of just understanding you, it's going to get to the point where they understand you better than you understand yourself. Absolutely. We're not that far away from that. I mean, just based on, it'll be able to draw upon experts, it'll be able to analyze all the data it has on you that you don't even know that it's picking up. That is scary. Like, that is kind of a Black Mirror episode in a lot of ways. We are living in that time right now. And I say that... Every new technology is terrifying. I think what people are up in arms about right now is the rate rather than the advancement itself. People were terrified when cars came out because you could be driving around. There's no horse. Like every single wave of technology has caused this fear among the people. People were scared generation. when the seatbelt came out. Yeah. They said, I don't want a seatbelt. They're trying were, to control me. Think about when fire came out. People were scared when fire came out. Like, that's, I don't want to say it's equitable, but like, it's the same principle. It is scary. It is terrifying. And like, we're running through it at breakneck speed. So I, I would say that no, that a lot of really smart people are working on how to put up safety measures, how to put up barricades and, and guardrails on a lot of this technology. 
it is scary. We'll probably see some major misuses and mistakes and some things happen with this technology, just like every single technology. That's how we learn. That's how we learn. And I would say, do you think that the space rocket, like the rocket, was a bad idea? Because that had some pretty catastrophic failures and it killed some people. Killed monkeys. <laughs> yeah, I mean... There's some monkeys in there. Yeah, like they killed, it killed people and monkeys. But I think we would say as a whole, as a human species, that was a good invention. Like it's good that we have that. The same thing is true for AI. It's scary, true. It's moving really, really fast, true. But the amount of net benefit that it can provide to us far outweighs those fears, in my opinion. And I know that there are a lot of people out there that feel differently, and you can argue all day long about the negative side effects. And what I say to that is you can say the same thing with every single technology. You can say that with the knives in your kitchen drawer, that they're sharp and they could cut you and you could die. That's really true. But we still all want to have knives in our kitchen because they're really useful and we do a lot of things with them. That's, I think, the principle that I apply to almost every technology. I like that principle a lot. That makes a lot of sense. There's always going to be the pro and the con. It's just it's yin and yang. You cannot escape it. For everything that's good, there's going to be, you know an equal and opposite reaction happening at once. And so I'm just curious because we're talking about Apple, $2 trillion company. They have so much data. They're just sitting on it. You know what I mean? Like they're Saudi Arabia. They got oil money type <laughs> data. It's insane. So do you and think- And oil money type money. <laughs> they, they, they go beyond the oil. Honestly, now that I think about Nobody's it- Nobody's got money like that. Yeah, maybe the oil people are still- they, Oil people have Apple money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that's a good distinction. Uh, so I'm just curious because we're talking about these crazy language models. And so it's like, do you think the most important factor is just having data? Or do you think that there's other important factors that go into creating like a really awesome model that helps people? That's a fantastic question. Um, I would say having that data is huge. It's The answer to that question, truthfully, is still being figured out. We're still actively in the phase where some of these technologies are being released as we speak, and we're still waiting to find out the end results, what the downstream effects of these different micro decisions are. Um, currently, the kind of going theory in a broad sense is that the larger amount of data set that you have, the more well-trained your AI is going to be, and therefore, the better it's going to be for the population. That being said, we found out looking at like the difference between ChatGPT from OpenAI and Google's Bard, that user interaction, direct user interaction, which to be fair is in a way a data set, but I would say there is an important distinction between the two. People using it, interacting with it, telling it it's wrong, telling it it's right, feeding more data into it and generally shaping it is just as important as having this massive data set. So like I would say having a larger data set is going to set it apart and make it better, but they also need to have people using it and interacting with it because AIs have this 
process called hallucination, where a certain percentage of the time, they will just read their data set incorrectly. And so you have to have this human in the loop saying, um, no, you're actually wrong. It's not 2021, it's currently 2023, so that the AI can learn, overwrite its, its um, uh, hallucination and move on and, and move on better with new and better data. Um, because just the larger and larger data sets, we're gonna run into this issue, especially moving into the future where a lot of the data out there is written by AI. And so just capturing more data, you're gonna end up with a lot more data that's written by AI. Therefore you have hallucination, written over hallucination, written over hallucination. You end up with this copy machine problem where if you take a copy of a copy, it eventually becomes more and more degraded until you're left with a picture that you can't read, if you've ever done that before. Um, and so we need humans in the loop. So people that are super worried about AIs running off and taking over the world, we actually need humans in the loop. They need humans in the loop in order to continue to progress. So that's something they should you know, take some solace in. But I guess that's for right now, right? Like, what if it gets to the point where there's that artificial general intelligence? What do you think about that? I think AGI is still a ways off. I could be proven very wrong about this. I generally don't like to take any bets against the advancement of technology and the exponential rate of innovation. But I think we're a ways off from AGI. And another thing is that I don't think AGI will look anything like any super intelligent machine that we've seen in any movie. It's not gonna look like Terminator. It's not gonna look like 2001 A Space Odyssey. Anyone that you wanna pick. I don't think it's gonna look like that because it really is a set of code. It's not gonna like be malevolent and, and just want to kill humans. We need to be careful with it, but I also think that we're going to be able to build it in a particular way, and we are taking steps right now. It seems like we're leaping forward, but really we are taking steps. We're going from your keyboard predicting words to now this, what looks like a really, really intelligent thing that's really just predicting words. So I would say that should give you a good distinction between what AGI will be, which is virtually an unimaginable level of intelligence and diversification of intelligence to a large language model. So GPT-4 is really, really good at predicting what the next word is gonna be based on it having read or ingested tons and tons of data. It knows what the next word is very likely to be. But an AGI is something that is on a completely different scale, a completely different level than that. Like, by that same token, we've had computers that are really, really good at chess, but they're not good at anything else. That's the difference. Humans are good at virtually everything. Everything we know of, we're good at. There's no computer that's anywhere even remotely near that yet. I think we will get there. I'm hopeful that we will reach the singularity, which is, if you don't know, the term given to the point at which we reach true artificial general intelligence or AGI. There are people actively working on that problem. I would say we're decades away.
I don't think we're hundreds of years, but I think we're decades. So for the people listening, you believe that this will happen within our, our yeah. lifespan. Yeah. That's pretty, that's pretty intense. <laughs> it's scary. Like, it's scary. The, the first thing that I think about, because I know we've been talking a lot about technology, and so just to kind of make a little bit different pivot before we continue down the technology path is that, have you seen the movie Her with Joaquin Phoenix? I actually haven't, but I've heard so much about it. Yeah, he essentially falls in love with this artificial intelligence that's in his ear. It's like a personal assistant. It's exact. The reason why I started to think about this comparison was because of Siri. Where if Siri starts getting really good, Siri's going to start sounding pretty sexy. If I want Siri to sound sexy, you know, so it's like there are already uh, products out there. And so right I'm getting now. there, and so I'm, I'm getting there, and I like exactly where your head's at. And so now that we are starting to see these, this technology get really powerful, feel human like, like what do you think about the fact that I just saw that there was the first AI girlfriend? That yeah. was out there, and yeah. it's a you know these influencers create what they say. Hey, here's me. Here's exactly how I talk because I've let it. You know, I've fed it all this data about mm-hmm. me, so mm-hmm. it knows me. Hi, I hi, talked hi, to hi. a startup last week that is building that. And so, what do you think about that? Like, is that exciting you? Is that scaring you? Yeah, it's not scaring me. Like I said, I I love this. Like this just gets me all all kinds of excited. All of this innovation. Do you think innovation. would benefit most from having an AI girlfriend? Sorry, say that. Who do you think would benefit most from having an AI girlfriend? Because this scares me. This part of AI, yeah. it, it scares me. It's a little bit scary. But let me, let me take a step back and like re-reference the fact that we're in this big AI bubble of like all this crazy stuff being built right now and like there's lots of people using tons of technologies that really truly are flashes in the pan um, or products I should say that are flashes in the pan the technology underlying it is still there I actually think that products like this maybe not exactly AI girlfriend will be valuable maybe not in their current state but there's so many people out there especially given our age of ultimate distraction, that everyone is doing everything and seeing everything, there are a growing, very quickly growing number of people who feel unbelievably lonely. They feel like they're getting no real interaction. And so having something there, even if that really is a computer, even if it's something that's just really good at predicting what the next word is, that can make someone feel like they're being heard, that someone cares about them, that someone is listening to them, that's real. Like, that's very valuable. That can be super impactful to somebody and can help steer them back onto a path, especially if they're very consciously uh, built and driven. And, you know, things like incentives are very important here. And building the right incentives around products like that so that the product is incentivized to really truly help you and not suck you in like instagram that's the scary part instagram and tiktok that's that's very scary are highly incentivized to suck you in and, and make you spend more time there and more time looking at everything that you don't have and everything everybody else has and that is what is isolating us and I know for a fact, I've heard several companies, and the name is escaping me right now, and maybe you can put it in the in the show notes. We can look it up later. But um, there are companies that are 
very actively thinking about how to build the right types of products. Reid Hoffman is actually a co co-founder, the um, founder of LinkedIn. Um, they're working on this exact problem. Things that are supposed to be highly conversational and feel like a friend or even a girlfriend maybe, but their incentives are aligned to like truly help you and, and be that listener, be that voice, that encouraging voice for you. I think that has the potential to help a lot of people because so many people do not get that in their lives at all. I agree. This has a very positive, you know, potential for some people, but I think it's almost overly optimistic to believe that these things are going to be pointing us in the right direction where, oh my gosh, I have an AI girlfriend and she made me be such a better person. Now I'm actually having sex with a real human and I'm procreating. To me, there's that slippery slope because it's like those people who are incredibly lonely the moment they start to feel love and attention from somebody, they instantly get attached. And so it's almost as if, even though these products may be designed with the intention of incentivizing you to explore the outside world, to not get sucked in, there are those people who just will get sucked in because now they have attention, they have people who care about them. So it's like, even though there may be this thing that's telling you, hey, go meet real people. It's like, well, I don't wanna meet real people, I love you. You know, it's like, because the movie mm -hmm. Her, Walking mm -hmm. Phoenix, He's no longer interested in humans. He's genuinely emotionally in love with an AI that the AI has then convinced itself that it is human and that it's not a computer. So it's hard, right? Because it's like, here's this really, like this really positive thing that it could bring to a large percentage of the population who is incredibly lonely. Like that is a thing. But at the same time, through it helping you with your loneliness, you actually become even more isolated because now you're just focusing on the love and support that, that this machine gives you. So I kind of have two directions to go from there. One is that, do you think en masse, those same people, the people that would be hyper fixated, do you think that they're better off having no one? What do you think their outlet is other than becoming hyper fixated on the AI that listens to them? What is their alternative? What other choice are they going to make? A school shooting. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, or... Uh, true. Yeah, like, you know, like, those are the types of people that are driven or have it within themselves to make those horrible, violent decisions and do terrible things. Do you think that there is a potential for maybe not all of them? I'm not saying that it will be 100% good all the time, but... Do you think that some of those people could be helped with having anything that feels to them like it's like they're being listened to, they're being heard? I think that's a really good point. And I think that was something that I didn't consider when I originally spoke my words. And so taking a step back, looking at what you presented, I do think it is a good viable alternative to just becoming incredibly angry and frustrated with the world and they end up you know lashing out in a very destructive way that does result in people taking a gun and shooting random people mm -hmm. so it, it i do agree i think part of i guess my concern is that this ai type companion starts to bleed out and extend to just people who are in normal day-to-day -day life. 
You know, so it's like when it comes to this very specific population who could really benefit from having somebody be there, interact with them, make them feel cared, heard, loved, understood, seen, that's all great. And I do actually see the value in that. But I guess my my uh, concern is that there's going to be more and more people seeing it and like, whoa, like, you know, they interacted with it one time and then it did make them laugh. And then now people who otherwise would be interacting with real people or it's it, to me, I see it as like a, uh, a Tinder dating app, like alternative on steroids, mm-hmm. because the moment mm-hmm. you have dating apps that is accessible in your pocket, you start to give up opportunities to interact with real people because you know if you go home you'll be able to see real people but swipe and you'll be able to save yourself from rejection and all of the negative emotions that comes with facing real life everyday interactions with other people so that's actually what i fear not necessarily the people who could benefit most cases but yeah it's more so what it could end up leading to in terms of having more people actually further isolated because they start to depend on this as a crutch and then that crutch actually ends up having you be in a full-blown wheelchair. There's no doubt about that. I think those are like things we 100% need to consider and hopefully that the new products being released, that there are some sort of safety rails, guardrails put in place. I feel like I'm personally just hardwired to look at like, how can this be good? How can this be good? And... Yeah, like you have to consider those negative effects because they are very real. I would say that there just is so much potential out there that like the potential good, I would say the potential good is just is just always out there. It's it's always better than than the potential bad, but that is not to devalue those potential bads. And I guess to make it even more concerning from my perspective is I'm assuming you've seen the latest announcement with Apple and the new Vision Pro AR glasses yeah. that they have. <laughs> like first, just give me your first impressions when you saw the video, when you saw the keynote. What was going on in your head? I mean, it's Apple. Like, it's sick. It's, it's sleek. It's so cool. It's sleek. It's so cool. I mean, it's first gen, like, to think about, like, the way that I look at it is, it's like when the first iPhone versus the iPhone 4S, like, the fourth version of this headset is going to be incredible, and it's going to be easy to use. Like, right now, it has a two-hour battery life. That's appalling. You can't can't even watch a movie. Right. The 14th generation. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm very excited purely because, and, and I'm glad you actually bring up the 14th iPhone. I was just having a conversation about this with my boss that you look at the iPhone 1. I mean, it was groundbreaking. It was revolutionary. It was brand new. The advancement from that to the 4S is almost equally, maybe not equally, but extremely groundbreaking. Like, it's almost a new piece of technology. Like, it is so different. It's so much better in so many different ways. The 5 was better. And then the 6 was a little bit better. And it starts getting just incrementally better. And then the 15th isn't that much better than the 5. It is tiny little steps versus massive steps. This is a whole new direction, a whole new thing for Apple. So that makes me very excited. And I hope that they pour as much of their innovation into innovation energy because they have this engine that they've built up they're a two trillion dollar company with all your data and like 
they have such a stranglehold on what people want and what people need. I think that this AR headset is going to really change the game in so many ways. And so I guess, how do you think it's going to reshape the tech industry? Because, you know, to keep it in line with what we've been talking about, we've been talking about the evolution of technology, the really exciting things that's happening. So the moment this starts to gain widespread adoption, how do you think that's just going to change the tech landscape? So it's interesting that you say that. And I know startups, I know people in the industry that are on both sides of this, some of whom saw that keynote and were just like, this is the most incredible thing that could have possibly happened right now for my business. I'm building something in this space or I'm building something adjacent, something that's going to help this. And so Apple coming out with this has Apple doing almost anything will shift the market landscape, but something on this scale, like they're creating a new branch of the market almost entirely. And so a lot of startups, a lot of people are unbelievably excited about this. And then there's this whole other side of businesses that were absolutely killed. That on that keynote, their stock prices fell, their valuations dropped, investors called them and said, we don't wanna engage with you anymore, like their company is dead because of that. So what aspect of what was in the keynote like, that you can speak to that started just to kind of make these companies receive these phone calls of bad news? Yeah. So so people coming out with either their own headset or building apps into some of the existing headsets, like say the MetaQuest or something of that nature, that everyone's just going to use the Apple. And right now it is astronomically expensive. It's $3,500. So not that many people are going to use it. So in the short term, it's pretty good for Meta and it's pretty good for some of those companies. But over the long term, a lot of people know that this is the direction we're heading. We're going Apple now. Apple's in the game. They're probably not going to go anywhere. They don't usually take on anything lightly. So that's the direction we're heading. We don't want to head in that direction anymore, essentially. I don't have any really great concrete examples, but I know that there are a lot of companies out there that we're building in that space or we're making particular software that now Apple's building in-house and um, just things like that. Yeah, what I really like about Apple coming out with the Vision Pro is that it now legitimizes AR and VR. Like before, it was just like, oh yeah, that's just this kind of esoteric technology concept. You know, is people shrug it off. Mm -hmm. But it's like, how many people do you know that have an iPhone? Most people that you know have an iPhone. There's always going to be that one guy with the Android because, you know, given the, the capabilities of the Android, <laughs> shut the fuck up. You got a green text message. Just shut the fuck up. Just stop it. <laughs> yeah. You know, so. Sorry, not sorry to any Android users listening. Get an iPhone. <laughs> yeah. Stop playing around. I'm just teasing. I'm choking chickens. Um, <laughs> but I think it's really exciting to see them legitimize this market. And so, like you said, I think it's really going to benefit, you know, Meta in that short term because I mean, thirty five hundred versus a couple hundred dollars for theirs, and right. and it's all like they're also serving two different markets, right? Where Meta is more focused on gaming; they have controllers, and so there's design, you know, um, features that Apple took in sacrifice of gaming that meta mm -hmm. is leaning into. Mm -hmm. So it really is going to create that divide where I can almost see it as, 
you know, for right now, early stages, it's almost like, you know, Apple versus Android. But right now, Android is just going to be meta. So there's going to be a lot. Most of the world operates on Android. You know what I mean? Like most people are using yeah. Androids. Yeah. So I don't what are, you, what are your thoughts on what I'm saying? No, I, I 100% agree. I mean, I think a lot of kids are going to ask for the Vision Pro for Christmas this year or next year or whenever it actually comes out. And there's a lot of parents going to be going, well, the MetaQuest looks a lot nicer yeah. on my wallet. So I think they're going to get the MetaQuest. Yeah. yeah. It's basically <laughs> the same. We have Vision Pro at home. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think 100%. I align, I align with your statement on it legitimizing the market. Like, it totally does. People are going, okay, AR and VR is real. And Apple's in it It's not now. going anywhere. Apple is putting $2 trillion behind it. With a T. It's going to be so. With a T. <laughs> that's a big, that's an almost unfathomable number. I can't even wrap my head or I could not count to no, $2 trillion. No. I can't count you it. You couldn't. I couldn't. <laughs> like, it's not even exaggeration. I literally just couldn't. <laughs> yeah, you couldn't do it. Even I was going, what the other? I can't. <laughs> you couldn't <laughs> I can't do it. You couldn't do it. Um, so I, I, I think there's a lot to be said there, and just the that kicking off the whole AR market to me is is extremely exciting. I a hundred percent agree. And so I guess before we bring it back to where I want to take it. I'm just curious in terms of just the broader, just industries in general, whether it be education or healthcare, what do you think AR technology, like what kind of implications does this have on those industries? Actually, let's start with education. Because I think education is is oftentimes something where we point to and say, it's broken. The way we learn is not how we should be learning. You know, a lot of people have very strong opinions on how education is operated right now. So do you think that, actually, before I give you a leading question, just what do you think about AR mm -hmm. and the potential it has in something like education? I think AR has such extreme potential. I, I've been saying this for a while that I think VR will have its place. It will continue to get better at the same rate of all technology that it will still remain relatively niche in the broad spectrum, but that AR will become virtually ubiquitous. That almost everyone will end up wearing a pair of glasses or a pair of contacts eventually with AR capabilities and that that will permeate absolutely every aspect of our lives. I think we will be living with AR, all of us. So... That I mean, that's a huge statement to make to go a little bit deeper to like give some concrete examples on that. I honestly think AI will do more for education than I don't know. That's hard to say, but uh, AI AI will do a lot for education. AR I think is just a continuation of this trend that we've been moving on since the iPhone and since smartphones in general of having information at our fingertips it's now directly in our eyes. Like that is the logical next step. So the whole thing about, oh, it's a hands-free, right? Like I don't have to be sitting at home on my desktop typing things into a computer. I can be virtually anywhere in the world and type it into my iPhone and pull up almost any piece of information that I could possibly need. All of humanity's information is available at my fingertips 
Now it's available right where I look, anywhere, intuitively coming up with the information that I want, when I want it, where I want it. So just to give a, just to give a random and broad example, I'm walking down the street of a city I've never been to before. Suddenly the map is overlaid on my vision and I'm seeing what names of the buildings are, what individual stores are. If I'm looking for something that's four blocks away, it's going to show me that. It's going to show me that through the buildings that I'm looking at right now. And it's going to say it's right over here. It's on the third floor. It's the, it's the room right over here. And I can just see that by looking at it. So it's speaking a different language. Now it's putting exactly what they're it's saying. It's all visual. It's a heads up display for my life. So we're moving towards heads up display for cars. That's happening. Sometimes there's little projectors that will shoot up onto the windshield and they're showing speed and navigation and things like that. It's just taking that a step further. And now I have that for everything. I'm able to identify objects, products, anything I want right in my line of vision and my hands are free. I can be doing anything. I like the the implications of that are virtually endless. But I have the ability to pull up information to look at somebody and match them with their LinkedIn by looking at them and now I know who they are and what they do for a living when I go and walk up to them. If I'm, is that scary in a way? Like, should you be, it's a little bit. Should you be able to look at me and know exactly who I am? And my, it's like, what if I don't want to give you that information? I think security features will progress alongside some of this technology. Like right now, you don't have to display your profile picture to anybody who's not connected with you on LinkedIn, for example. Like you could just opt out of your face being recognizable to AR devices for LinkedIn. Yeah, it just blurs their face. Or you could go to networking events and turn it on and say, I want my face recognizable now. So now everybody knows. And they're like, oh, wow. Isaac, you work for AWS. I want to go talk to you. Like that kind of stuff. Um, and, and that could be all customizable. Like that, I think, are tiny little pieces of this spotter technology. I could go out and like my car's not working. I open the hood Every little part is now named and labeled for me in front of my eyes. And I, I could be picking apart. It could tell me how to put it all back together. Like that kind of, that kind of a thing. I, like AR is just the logical next step in evolution of information availability. Yeah. To me, I'm taking a breath because I'm like, holy fuck. <laughs> what does this all mean and just kind of tying it back to ai girlfriend like to what do you think then let's say we get to the point where the vision pro evolves to it's a contact lens and we put it on mm -hmm. and now you can have this fully immersive environment where i, I just think that i am in honolulu a whitey you know next to you being a howley and i start thinking of a beautiful woman and now she's there and she's, you know, doing belly dancing and she gives me like, you know, I get laid by she throws on one of those little flower things around my neck. And I'm like, ah, like, what do you think? Because it, it all comes down to the number one concern that I'm having is increased isolation. I think to me, the number one thing about being human is interacting with others. It takes a village to raise a baby. We need to be with other people mm -hmm. constantly connected. And so although this has the guise of being constantly connected and having information at your fingertips and, you know, I want to FaceTime you so I just think of you and you pull up. But at the same time, for those people 
who are just chilling at home and now we got to work from home. So it's like, is there even going to be an excuse to leave your house? <laughs> Should I even think of going on that vacation? Because I can just think of it. And it gives me this full immersive virtual experience that is practically indistinguishable from real life. So I think that until we get to the point where Neuralink, we have Neuralink and they're shipping pumped directly into my brain. And explain that for people input. who don't know. Okay, so Neuralink is a project that Elon Musk is working on and it's all about um, brain machine interface or brain computer interface, BCI. Uh, and that's essentially an implant that goes into your brain and it's bypassing this whole headset, contact lens, all of this stuff. And instead, all of this input is going directly into my brain. It's tapping into my visual cortex, my sensory cortex. It's putting that data directly into what my brain will interpret as being real life. So that is a bit of a dystopian futuristic outlook. That is Black Mirror, right? Like. Yeah, maybe there won't be an excuse to leave my house. And I think you, that's along the lines of you take it a step further and you're at simulation theory, right? Like you progress at a certain rate. Eventually this VR stuff will become so good that it will be truly indistinguishable from both a visual and a sensory aspect that we can't tell the difference. Like, how do we know we're not in one right now? So, I don't know. I, I think that is a little bit too far out to speculate on the major downfalls of because, like, obviously there's major downfalls. But it's in our, our lifespan, though. Uh, it's potentially in our lifespan. Like, there's yeah, uh, and like our whole society would change. I mean, if you want to look at both a positive and a negative, depending on how you look at it, like you watch something like Ready Player One. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I think it depends on your perspective. Because it now enables you access to so many things that you would never otherwise have access to. And if it is indistinguishable from reality, then why do you need to leave your house? If you can truly interact with people in a virtual way, why do you need to leave your house? You can fuck them. Have you seen those toys where it's literally like haptic touch but yeah. you're dick in it yeah. and it feels like it's yeah, grippy? You got the, yeah, I have. And like, yeah, that's not that far away. Um, and why do you, like, right? I mean, I'm not necessarily saying that's a good thing, but I'm just saying in the case that that technology really does become ubiquitous, aren't there some major positives? Aren't there some major upsides to that? And how much do you lose in terms of the interaction at the point at which it is truly indistinguishable? I agree that there's probably going to be a large region of that in which it's kind of halfway. And a lot of people will become isolated and that probably will be a hugely negative thing. Because it's like what starts happening to birth rates? What starts happening when a new child is born? Are they just going to be directly from the moment they're born implanted with this chip automatically plugged matrix in? It's just the matrix. battery. Now you are just yeah. in this tub and this is the life that you get lived out and you're just an agent of the matrix. And I ask, how do you know that we're not that right now? 
that in itself is a question that I feel like people have been inadvertently trying to answer since ancient Greek. Agreed. And my follow-up question to that is, if so, so what? If we really are just in a tube right now with wires hooked up to us, what's the problem? So if How does we... that change how we should live our lives? And is it really a negative if this is the experience that we're having? Well, I guess then it begs the question of if, if you're then born in a tube and implanted with a chip from the moment you're born and you're given a certain trajectory on your life, especially based on the genetic code that you're born with, is then life just purely deterministic and there's no aspect of free will at all? So the moment people are born into the program, you're like, okay, this is your trajectory. This is the life you're going to live. Have fun. So I think that is an element to it where that is kind of the scary part where it's like, well, if I am born into a fucking tube that I don't really know, then it's like the, the ways people suffer, the way they end up getting out of it is the fact that they, they hold on to the sliver of faith, the sliver of hope mm-hmm. that they have the free will to change their situation. So if people were to become self-aware of the fact that they are living in a simulation and that they can't change the trajectory, do you think that would overall change morality in a sense? Because this is a big thing that would later kind of, you know, through interactions with everybody that would start to evolve and change. So you're saying in this hypothetical, like something is revealed to the human race that in fact we are in a matrix Everybody is in a tube somewhere else. This is a different reality that we're all experiencing. That's... Yeah, essentially for right now. Would that change... I mean, yeah, like that would probably just cause the breakdown of all society. People would kill themselves. People would loot. People would ravage. People would war. Or, But would that be with... It could also be to get to the point in time where if I start to think things that are outside of the program then it's going to continue to put me back on the track. You know what I mean? So it's like there may not even be a revolt or revolution because the moment the greater technology starts to feel an inkling and that there may be somebody breaking through the matrix where it's like, nope, boom. You know what I mean? Then thought disappeared. So there's a movie about that called The Mandela Effect that's really freaky. And if this scares you... It's a horror movie. <laughs> like, it's really intense. Um, my kind of follow-up question there is like, if that's the case, then we can assume that that is happening right now. And if so, then it doesn't matter. Because our lives are exactly the same, and we have to live them with the assumption that we have the choice, that we have free will, because anything else is useless. It's interesting. It's it's. I, I wouldn't say it's useless to question. It's important to question. But it doesn't change anything about my life right now if in true reality everything is deterministic. It doesn't matter to me. And that doesn't matter why? Because no decision I make will impact anything greater than what it's supposed to. If that truly is the case. And therefore, every decision I make is predetermined. And if that is the case, then I will have already... Like, every decision I make is chosen for me. Therefore, I just keep making the decisions that I would have otherwise made. And they happen to be chosen for me. 
but it doesn't actually change what my life is for my personal experience. I think you're making a case that a lot of people are going to be hearing and be like, this guy is fucking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I, this guy I, wants me to live in a tomb well, it's, it's and accept all, reality as is. It's all for me to argue that like, in the very base reality, I think there is chaos. Like, we can't know everything all at a single moment and therefore predict the future. Like, that, that theory, essentially, that is determinism theory, that if we were able to isolate every particle in the universe, understand its velocity and its trajectory, that we could then predict the future. I actually think that's wrong. I think that there is chaos, there is serendipity, there is randomness in the universe. And so if we were to be plugged into a tube, do you think that randomness would be preserved or it then kind of puts guardrails on randomness and that then morphs into the re exact theory that you don't believe in to be true? That's a very good question. Um, I just, I think I keep coming back to the fact that like, if I really am in a simulation and my decisions are laid out before me, then I'm going to keep living my life exactly the way that I've been living it because I will have no knowledge that my decisions are predetermined. Therefore, to my own experience, these decisions are free will. Therefore, in my, for my own experience, I have free will. So as long as you don't question it, life is okay. <laughs> <laughs> but where, where would questioning get me? If I'm truly in a simulation, if there's some greater power controlling everything, I'm plugged into tubes, what is questioning going to get me? I mean, uh, that's kind of the works of thousands of years of philosophy. Where does that get us? We don't really fucking know. You know no, what I mean? No, no, like I said, it, it's, it's important to question. But I'm just, I, I, I'm more saying like this ultimate higher thing that makes every decision for me. Like, I can't live a different life based on the potential of that being the case. I have to live my life exactly the way that I'm going to live it, no matter what. It's important to question. It's important to talk about these things. It's important to think about them. Thousands of years of philosophy, like you said. But that particular point, it's not going to change how I live my life. Like I, I can't live more free will or less free will. I just live. I exist. I make decisions based on the data that I have. So how would this impact religion? If there then ends up being where we're plugged into a simulation, it's like, is that then central unifying code that brings us all together God? Like, are there still going to be different sectors of belief? Oh, yeah. Like, people will worship it. 100%. People just start would worshiping worship it. the technology. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, that would be God. Like that made us. It's our maker. Or so they made our reality. Would there then be just one world religion? No. No. I, I, I wasn't totally done. So to me, and to I think a lot of people, like the concept of God is inherently something greater and beyond any reality that we can conceive of. Beyond human comprehension. Therefore, if we learned about something, it wouldn't be so great that it was beyond our comprehension and therefore it wouldn't be God. Okay. So do you think that there's, it would, there would absolutely still be different religions. I don't think there's ever going to be one world religion. That's a, that's, and 
antithetical to human nature. You don't know what the one world government's agenda is. <laughs> I don't know what they're trying to get me to do. I don't know what they're trying to get me to they do. Want to but... destroy God? <laughs> Believe in me. What is me exactly? We know you better than you. You fuck. <laughs> Jesus Christ. All right. Well, we've been kind of inadvertently talking about it. We've been talking past it. So to transition, to pivot. Let's start talking mm-hmm. about transhumanism, optimalism. I figured we'd get there. Yep. Let's just... Can you explain these concepts to our listeners? What, what What is these things? We've been talking about it a little bit, but just... Yeah. Yeah. Some, I mean, I think we, we are all... It's all kind of touching on this concept. And truly, transhumanism and optimalism are the same thing. It's different words for the same thing. And it's important to like make that distinction, those different words, because... They evoke different emotions in us. When you say transhumanism, it's like, oh, you're not human anymore. You're doing, you're, you know, you're altering yourself. You're, you're changing what happens to you. And then optimalism is like, oh, well, that sounds good. Optimalism is, I want that. Like, it'll be optimized. Yeah, I want to, I want to. So the general concept is improvement upon myself as a human being. Specifically my body, but also encompassing my brain. There's a lot to, to lead from from there, but like that is, the, that is the general concept. And it's very often tied in with like biotech advancements. Because that is the advancement of our cells and the advancement of us as humans, our bodies. Transhuman, transhumanism and optimalism are just the general drive towards increasing the capacity and the ability of the human form. So, you know how we are talking about, will we see these crazy paradigm-shifting technological advancements happen within our lifetime? You know how we've been talking about that since the whole episode? Well, if we start to look at some of the biotech advancements that are happening there, and since we're on the topic of transhumanism and optimalism, do you think that even just having a conversation about lifespan, it's just like, yo, you don't know how long you might be three hundred years old. Yeah. What do you what do you think about this? Yeah, I think it's totally within our lifetime. So that's like a personal major interest of mine, biotech. It has been for a long time. It's something that I was touching on at the very tail end of the first time I was on the podcast. And like I'm super bullish on biotech and just deeply believe in that technology, I think we really haven't even begun to see what that is going to affect on the human race. We've like biotech has been around since the beginning of, of medicine, really since the beginning of time. I mean, I think the, the concept of optimalism has been innate within us since the beginning of the human race. Like we always want to make ourselves better, but now with the aid of technological advancement, we will be able to do that at a faster and faster pace. And so we will start to see advancements on the level of this AI wave that has done for technology, but with our own bodies. Like that to me is really exciting. We're going to get to see much longer lifespans, much longer functional lifespans, I think is most important to point out that like 
right now the human body kind of starts to decline starting around 60 our our abilities and our, our abilities really started to decline before that even i mean they say the perk the the peak is like 35 for you know the ultimate human physical condition can be reached 30 to 35 and then from there kind of starts to go downhill our joints start to wear out we just start to get old our cells start to die we start to have diseases that ravage us our our minds go away and with the aid of biological technology we will start to be able to eliminate those things not just gradually improve them but eliminate them what are some recent biotech advancements that you think just the average person has no idea about because when i start to talk about biotech and i start to open up my mind to the ideas i'm just like so you're telling me putin is immortal <laughs> this man is going to be able to be on jupiter <laughs> so it's like what are some of the things that's happening that a lot of people don't know about? I I still come back to one of the things that I talked about at the very end of my last episode because it was so eye-opening for me, um, were some of the cellular and genetic editing technologies or tools that are that are coming on designer babies right now. Designer babies. I mean, we have those right now. Designer babies have been born. That's like that. I think that maybe that's a fact that people don't really know about. Um, designer babies have been born like already. Children with artificially edited genomes have been born and are alive right now. When and where? In China. Ah, yeah. that's how they get you. <laughs> where the uh, where the ethics are a little bit more loose. Uh, they were they were born and a little more free spirited over there. Yeah, they're alive and it, and it was basic. Like they were just eliminating some genetic diseases like right now we have the ability to eliminate every single genetic disease from the future population right now we have that ability it's just not very widespread and i honestly think that there's a lot of regulation around biological experimentation that's holding us back from the type of advancement that we're seeing with technology and Interestingly enough, I think we're reaching a point with technology at which its effects can be just as harmful as biotechnological advancements with the AI, exactly the things that we were just talking about a little bit ago with AI. Um, and so the fact that that's not being regulated on a federal level, on, a, on an international level, the way that biology is. I think those should be somewhat equitable. Like, I'm not arguing that there should not be regulation around anything, but I think that restricting the flow of innovation will only hurt us in the long run. So I think cutting back some of those strings, for example, think about how many regulations had to be cut and how much red tape had to be pulled away in order for us to get the COVID vaccine. And interestingly, I met the first person in the world to get the COVID vaccine last week. Um, and damn, I don't know if anybody could guess when she got the vaccine. February 2020. <laughs> what? Yeah. 
So she was in the very first clinical trial from Moderna with the COVID vaccine, February 2020. She okay? <laughs> Fine. She got the same thing we got in February of 2020. So how many lives could have been saved if we could have progressed fast enough to get it out by April of 2020? But how many people want to be a guinea pig? I think that was a lot of people's reluctance to wanting to Absolutely. There's a in. major stigma around that. And so I just think it should be up to individuals to choose. Like, it just comes back to the ethics question, and I don't remember if I really went into this on the last podcast or not, but it's something that uh, Balaji Srinivasan, who is like a personal hero of mine, who I listen to and just read everything that he puts out. I think he's a genius. He's the, he's done a lot of things, but um, former CTO of Coinbase, he's a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, which is arguably the largest and most successful venture capitalist in the world capital firm in the world um, and he was considered for head of the FDA under the Trump administration so he's really deep in bio as well he's a massive proponent of optimalism and talks about it all the time um, and that one of the points that he brings up is that like yes agreed it's unethical to give random people out there in the world untested and unproven drugs that we don't know what will happen if we give that to somebody. And yet, is it not just as unethical to not let a terminal patient try a potentially life-saving medication? Yeah, that's... It opens you up know a they will die, and yet this drug has the potential to help them. And they can't have it. Because of the regulations. And let me restate that I'm not arguing that we should repeal all regulations, but that we should take a very hard look at what is truly helping people and what is impeding innovation. Like, it's stopping so many potential therapeutics and potential biotech companies from getting off the ground because of how many hundreds of millions of dollars it takes just to try and go through this testing. And so some of it never sees the light of day, not because it didn't work, but because they didn't have $600 million to try and put this thing through the testing that it currently needs. So allowing more people to potentially opt in to trying out these things as an avenue to getting it out into the world and able to help people faster, I think would be valuable. Yeah, I definitely see the picture you're painting, and it's very interesting. It's very interesting. I don't think a lot of people are thinking about it outside of the industry that you find yourself in. I think it's the average person. This isn't really something that they're concerning themselves with. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just curious because we've been talking, we were talking about brain computer interface, Neuralink. And so do you think that something like a BCI would aid the progression of biotech in the sense that yeah. they're starting to really get that inside scoop of how our brain's firing, how the biology is working. And so you speak on that a little bit? Yeah. And the answer is yes, 100%. AI is already making great strides. So one of the reasons I'm so bullish on biotechnology is that prior to now and, and as we progress, the iteration cycles. And so 
like for anybody that doesn't totally understand what I'm talking about, iteration in software means I can build something, I can crank something out, let people use it, understand their feedback, change it, and put it back out in a very, very short period of time, like days or weeks. Biotechnology, that's years. I mean, like even spinning something up to the point where I could even potentially give it to one single person can take up to 10 years. So like the stuff that is being built in labs right now, as groundbreaking as it may be, we won't see it as a human population for 10 years. Think about the software advancement lifespan of 10 years, how far we've come. So think about like not being able to get access to that, not being able to iterate, not being able to change and move and get better for 10 years. And then maybe another 10 years if you get feedback. Like we're just hindering that process. And the testing cycle is even spinning it up in a lab, doing all the research takes maybe another 10 years. So starting from the very base, like somebody has an idea in their head, getting to the point where they can then start to go into clinical trials and need that $600 million or whatever it may be. The surrounding technology, the testing technology, the machines themselves that they're utilizing and the databases of adjacent technology and, and knowledge and learnings from every other scientist in the world are, are progressing at that software iterative speed. They're progressing fast enough that we're getting nearer to the point at which biology can start to progress at that rate. Once that happens, that's when we will hit the end of that long tail. We will hit the curve in the exponential advancement. That's when we'll see things like this AI boom for biotech. So it's a lot of this other technology that is that is holding back the iteration cycles. And like for a quick example, pretty recently Google Brain released their protein folding AI database where their computer was able to figure out and catalog the exact folding structures of the I, the number is escaping me but like a billion proteins Jeez. I could be wrong on that so don't hold me to that number but it was a massive number of proteins and I'd have to go super deep into like the science but essentially that was really, really powerful for developing therapeutics because now we understand exactly how to build the molecular structure of our drugs in order to target and work on specific proteins in the body. So like just that was a massive step for scientists building things in the biology space to be able to much more accurately do that. And AI will then soon be able to be on the other side and start to help design drugs and not just categorize and predict. Like it will be able to actually help make those new drugs. And like, that's kind of what I'm talking about. That iterative speed, that surrounding technology, the software and the hardware that allows biological testing to take place is getting to an inflection point. So we're not very far away. In the next couple of decades, biotech will start to be on everyone's radar.
the way that AI is now. It's, it's one of those things where you kind of just have to take a breath because when you couple that with this whole discussion that we've had about AI and what that paints as a picture and then you start incorporating biotech into it. So it's like, what do you say to the people who say, don't play God, don't fucking do it. Like, what's your, as someone who's like very bullish on biotech Mm -hmm. and really believes in the future of this and what it can provide, what do you say to those people that says, hey, you're doing too much, fucking quit it. (laughs) (laughs) Um... I come back to the same thing I said before, which is... Go talk to your AR girlfriend and leave me the fuck alone. (laughs) (laughs) Not quite that. But that all technology is dangerous, but that it also has the potential to do massive good. And, like, from the standpoint of how can you argue against less disease, less suffering... How can you argue that your loved ones should get Alzheimer's and MS and some of those other horribly debilitating diseases? How can you argue that they should have that? How can you argue in terms of, like, let's really dive into that, that religious standpoint that, like, well, you're you're trying to play God. Like, God had us here for a reason. Like, God also gave us the capacity to develop technologies to better ourselves. Or else we would still be in the Stone Age. But I don't think anyone would argue that we should still be in the Stone Age. They would argue that life is better now. And I would argue that life should and will continue to get better. And at a faster rate. I think in 500 years... 100 years... No one on the planet alive can comprehend or or think of what it will what earth will look like in 100 years honestly think about 100 years ago today i think if you plucked someone from there they would literally die you show them chat gpt <laughs> they, they would die <laughs> yeah. i think they would explode and advancement is exponential like our parents don't even understand what's happening right now the technology that we will have in 100 years will look like magic it will be inconceivable yeah i mean that's totally i I like when you're talking about magic because i think it almost begs the question of since we were talking about you know Neuralink, elon got brought up and you were talking about the space rocket and saying don't you think that's good and so do you think that with advancements of biotech and let's say hypothetically we're able to live hundreds of years now and we start to pour in even more capital into becoming interplanetary do you think that this then has the inevitability of us just traveling outside earth and outside you know the milky way like that, that is okay the is that where we're, yeah i mean yes like undoubtedly there's not even a question in my mind that we will be interplanetary Really? We have to be for our species to progress. We have to be, and we will be. There's no question in my mind. We don't have the technology yet. Like, well, we have the technology to get to Mars. So if you want to just talk about base interplanetary, yeah, 
we can populate the solar system now. Like, that's not very far away. I mean, in middle school, I was super, super into space and all, all things space. And, like, one of our projects was, it was called the Mars Project. And we had to, like, figure out how we would get to Mars and, like, how we would live there and all this kind of stuff. And, like, I was doing research on, in at JPL, at, like, advanced engine types. And we have shit that can get us, like, that we could build with enough money right now. But technology that's there that could get us to Mars in a couple of weeks. Like... That's a train ride. That's a train ride across the country right now that we could just take to get to Mars. So, like, there's absolutely no question that we'll be on Mars. I mean, I, I, I barely even think it's a question that we'll be interplanetary. There's, there's no doubt in my mind. We will crack that code. We will get outside of our solar system. We will populate our arm of the galaxy. We may populate other galaxies. I have no idea. Like, that is infinite, truthfully, as you're talking about the universe. But there's no question in my mind. Wow. I'll, I'll die on that hill, for sure. So when it comes to that point where we are becoming so incredibly advanced, where we are interplanetary, biotechnology is advanced to the point where we are living essentially as long as we want... You know what I mean? So uh -huh. it's like, what then becomes the point of life? Like, what do you, like, with all this talk of technology and the way that it's shaping reality and the way that we interact with the world, what do you think that kind of leaves us? We're like, what the fuck is this whole game about? Do you think that question is answered now without those things? Definitely not. But I'm saying, obviously, we don't know what the fuck meaning of life is. But I'm saying the more advanced that we get and the more connected that we that we do to technology and we have all this information at our fingertips, does that question become more relevant or less relevant? I think it stays just as relevant, equally. I don't think anything changes for that question. I think that is the question. What's the meaning of life? I think everybody has to answer that question individually, personally. Like, I think you have to figure out what your meaning of life is. And I, I generally hold to the idea that life is all about experiencing the most that you can and billing your time. So with that philosophy, then it becomes slightly more relevant because it has to change a little bit if you live 500 years a thousand years it's interesting right because i feel like let's say we get the the brain implant everybody's born with it and it starts to have what, what i feel like would then start to happen is that there's this path that's completely set out for you and so it starts kind of coming back to like the matrix that we we're talking about you're born into a tube so it's like because of the genetics that you have, because of the baseline energy that was going on with your brain, your computer is creating this path where it's like, hey, your path in life is to become a doctor and your meaning is to serve other people. Why do you, why do you think that having greater access to technology will greater determine our path for us? Do you think the iPhone determined our path for us more than before we had an iPhone? 
That's a good question. And I think the reason why I'm going on that train of thought is because we're talking about how the keyboard, as right now, in its simplest state, is trying to predict the next word I'm going to have. It's not always accurate, you know, just a simple basic keyboard. So it's like if it gets to the point where predictability is so ingrained within technology that is the crux of what it is is to per, is to limit the amount of deviation from its original path where it's like it's almost as if then if you then are born into this technology type life where it's like hey jake here's your path here's your meaning and so i guess my my question is more if we start to get more technologically advanced are we kind of going to start swaying away from these existential type questions? Or are we going to be receiving so much meaning because there's so much data that we're personally processing every single day where we can't even really fathom thinking exp you know, existentially because we're processing all this information that's happening in real time? So I think that's certainly a possibility. I mean, I think that starts to get into the point of like, at which point do we no longer become human? Like at which point is it just technology? But I, I hold to the idea that with more advancement becomes more branching. So I, I think that our meaning in life was actually much more narrow when we were hunters and gatherers than it is now. Think about the amount of opportunities that you have at your disposal right now. The amount of things that you could potentially do. It's exponentially greater than it was 100 years ago. And I think that will continue to be the case. As we expand more, so too do the branches of our opportunities and the possibility of human experience. Okay. And so I guess what I, with you saying that, it makes me think about Terrence McKenna. For those of you who, don't listen, who are listening who don't know who Terrence McKenna is, he was an ethnobotanist. He was very influential within the psychedelic movement and had a lot of interesting thoughts on psychedelics and he had this theory called novelty theory where he essentially believes that because the rate of which technology is advancing that time is speeding up because he says what when you look at what happens right now in a second there's all this data that's being instantaneously processed but then if you go to the dinosaur age and you take that one second how much information and data is really being happening. So he believes based on humans having this innate desire to, to improve optimalism, exactly what we we're talking about, where he believes it's going to reach a certain point where he had called it the omega point, where he believes where the omega point is essentially when we reach the fastest amount of which data can be processed. We're, we're essentially traveling at the speed of light. And so when we start traveling as fast as we know is possible in the universe, where time then starts to kind of stand still, and then we reach this whole, does that birth another universe? What does that do in this world? And so I guess I'm incorporating aspects of his, the of his novelty theory where it's saying, hey, well, if we do get on the track of constantly becoming more and more advanced, is that going to just make life stand still? Where literally life is just infinity? Where it's just kind of nothing but everything? It's a very interesting concept to think about. Um, I just, I don't know that I agree with that. Um, I think, I, I don't know that we will ever reach 
an omega point, uh, as as he puts it. I, I think we will even at the rate of which we've even been talking about what's going to happen in our lifespan, in our lifespan, and then now we're talking about a thousand years, ten thousand years, can, like with the assumed progression of which we're growing technology. You don't think at all that an omega point could be fathomable? I think that innovation and progression are truly infinite. Like I think it just I think it just stands there. I think that there is no end point. I I think that's that's almost like a a contrary argument that that they're the two are mutually exclusive. That the way that I believe that we are progressing, the branching out, the possibilities, the increased spectrum, the array of human experience is contrary to a progression towards a finite and and end point. I don't believe there's an end point. And so you would spit in his face <laughs> and say he's wrong. Fight him. No, 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 no. I mean I, I think it's a very interesting concept. I just don't align with that. I think I'm wired a little bit differently than that. But that, isn't that based on the assumptions of how we operate right now as humans? Who knows how you're going to be perceiving and operating in a world in which you are essentially are a cyborg? I agree. I, I think nobody knows the answer to that, myself included. But I think that his viewpoint is lines traveling to a single point, And my viewpoint is lines traveling from a single point. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I, I, I think infinite branching versus coalescence. Which is interesting, right? Because I feel like with his, when everything is coming to a certain point where everybody comes together, you know, it's like if we're all connected, if everything is this universal force that binds us together, then it's almost as if we all become one of the same thing. Mm-hmm. We're this hive mind in which we actually are pointed in the same direction and not infinitely branching out since we would all possess infinite amount of knowledge, infinity happening within itself. So it's almost as if, although it gives the perception that it's branching out, it actually is just converging to a single point. I don't even think necessarily it's giving the perception of, of branching out. I, like, I, I think that's a perfect. Well, that's what you said though, with branching out. That is my like personal philosophy. Yeah, that's what I'm talking. I about. I think his is is contrary to that. Yeah, right. Uh, so so like I don't think one gives the perception of another. I think yeah. they are they are truly antithetical yes. to one another. Yeah. Okay. Um. Sorry. I, I guess I just misunderstood what you're saying. But, um. Like I think his viewpoint is perfectly rational and like a a very potential possibility but i that's just not the way that i view things so i like i I take value in that and i and i understand the potential of us all becoming this great unconscious of which we are all connected in such a deep way that we eventually become one so that that i think maybe even begs the question of like a cyclical nature to things so I am arguing that we started at one point and have branched out. And he's saying we will again reach a singular point. 
is there not potential to branch out again from that singular point? And that's the question that he's saying, I don't know what the fuck's going on. What yeah, happened, neither what do happens I. I don't think that. anybody does, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, that's the end. That's that's the end of our perception and potentially the beginning of something new. Right? Like, does that then we start to see in itself where this collective mind of billions of people then through spirit of being unified creates another universe and that's exactly what this universe is it's just this collective force of oneness but is separate but one at the same time you know what i mean it's like what the fuck is going on help me am i high am i high it's a very real possibility it is what do you think this is just kind of like a throwaway but i'm just curious like do you think then once we're given like the implant and everybody has this fucking microchip screwed into their head where it's kind of like chat gpt in the sense that there will be guardrails on what is being able to be fed into your mind and what i mean by that is if i take a psychedelic for example which is going to make the brain engage in crosstalk there's going to be regions of the brain that aren't usually connected, that don't usually communicate to each other, that are not having a full-blown conversation. And so do you think then something like that could almost create guardrails where it's like, oh, we know what this is. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. This is going to make you question existentially, and you're going to realize that you're just in a fucking tub, you little fuck. <laughs> I think it's certainly possible. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that there will be guardrails on information and... That's kind of a whole different type of discussion, but uh, I, uh, there's guardrails on the information that we consume now. There will definitely be But we can get around the guardrails. That's the thing. That's what's different about now. Oh, you're saying, you're saying if the tech implant that I have, like, will it have the potential to have such control over my brain that it actually has control over my thoughts and, like, my ability to expand my thought processes? In a way, yeah. That's a potential. We can't say no. We can't say no. I don't know. Uh, definitely possible. Right? It's just one of those things that makes my brain tingle. And I'm just happy that I can tingle with supposedly my own free will. I don't know what that is. And so it's... Um, I don't know. This conversation itself has made my brain vibrate. I know. I'm starting to... It, my synapses are hurting. And I'm sure everybody <laughs> listening to this point has gotten to that where they're saying, hey, what the fuck are they talking about? They're what talking, the fuck is going on? They're talking too <laughs> abstract. I don't know what's happening. Am I living in a simulation? Do I have an AI girlfriend? Should I fuck her? <laughs> Should I go after that one girl I met at the bar? I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know if there's guardrails in my brain right now, but... Jake, I really, really appreciate all the insight that you've been able to provide on this podcast. I think it's super interesting. I think it gives everybody an inside scoop into what's to come, even though we ourselves don't really know what's to come. But I think you've been able to provide enough of insight where it's saying, hey, this should be on your radar. If there's yeah. any takeaway from this podcast, it's that the future is now. And the future is right now. And get ready. <laughs> and get ready. Embrace yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So, Jake, really, really appreciative and grateful to have spent this time talking with you. This has been the Searching for Something podcast. Thank you so much for everybody who's listened up until this point. And until next time, 
hopefully by the time that there's a next podcast out, um, you don't have a chip that's playing in your head and you are having sex with, um, with a very sophisticated uh, sex toy that's better than the person you currently love right now. Right, Jake? I couldn't agree more. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, everybody. <laughs>